Announcements, big announcements. Well, one primary announcement, um, as you have probably heard by uh, by email by now, uh, the 2016 Signum Annual Fund fundraising campaign is starting tomorrow. That's uh, uh, always a big deal, a major uh, a major moment in our calendar. Well, it's a long moment uh, in our calendar. Um, every year we run our fundraising campaign from Hobbit Day, which is tomorrow, Bilbo and Frodo's birthday, uh, through Halloween about a five and a half week campaign in which we try to raise the money that we need to support Signum and keep Signum and Mythgard rolling um, every year. Mythgard and, and, and Signum, Signum University, which is the parent institution, the Mythgard Institute being uh, sort of a subset of Signum. Um, Signum is a nonprofit university which is really trying to make a difference in the world of education. This program, of course, the Mythgard Academy, um, is one of the programs that we have been supporting uh, well, not just supporting. I mean, running. You know that we've been, we've been, we have established and have been working. Um, you know, for uh, for the last now we've finished three years now of Mythgard Academy, uh, which is which is kind of cool, kind of cool. Looking forward to year four. And um, anyway, so I hope that you will consider, uh, if you, especially if you've been enjoying the Mythgard Academy classes. Um, I hope that you will consider uh, making a donation to support Signum University. But anyway, tomorrow night, tomorrow night, same time, 9.30 p.m. Eastern, tomorrow night we're going to have the kickoff event where I'm going to go through, we do every year to sort of celebrate Signum and what we do and all of our special programs and everything. We do a whole bunch of uh, special events uh, over this next month. And so we have a, a lot of events planned, lots of really, really fun things. I'm going to go through and explain all those things um, tomorrow evening. So if you can join me tomorrow evening, there's, uh, uh, we, sent out a, we sent out an email with the link you can find it uh, if you go to uh, the um, annual fund page so if you just go to signumuniversity.org and click on the button at the far right that says donate that'll bring you to our annual fund page where you can find links to the uh, uh, to the campaign and the campaign events and uh, stuff is all there so I hope some of you will be able to join me uh, at the launch event tomorrow where I'll explain all the really fun stuff including some extra bonus Mythgard Academy action. So uh, uh, when I did, um, I was torn uh, with this. Uh, I, I, so I wanted to do a, a bonus session coming up soon. Um, but I had two nominations from Council of the Wise, uh, which were really, really both very equally tempting to me. Um, and so I did a, a very non-scientific uh, uh, Twitter poll uh, last night. And that didn't help because there was a lot of support for both of them too. But I have made, I have firmly made my decision, um, which is we're going to do a bonus session on Isaac Asimov's Nightfall. That's a short story by Asimov. It's a 20-page story. Uh, so if you've never read it before, I'd never read it before. Um, you'll have plenty of time to read it. Uh, this bonus session is going to be soon. We're going we're to do it next week. Um, so uh, it'll be next Thursday. So next week we'll have our regular... Class two on the dispossessed, right? S session number two on Wednesday night, and then on Thursday night we'll have our special bonus session on Isabov's Nightfall. Okay, um, so that's going to happen. That's just one little taste of one of the many events that are going on during the campaign, and which I'll explain uh, more uh, next time. So, I, as I say, I do hope that um, that you'll be able to join me. If not, it will be recorded and posted. As usual, uh, for those of you who are new, I recognize most of the names uh, here, but for those of you who are new, 
Um, the recordings of these sessions are always posted, the videos are posted to our YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube, you can see there's a playlist for all the Mythgard Academy videos. There are also separate playlists that are set up for each one of the books that we, that we discuss. Um, so you can find the video recording. The video recordings will be there uh, very soon, usually within a day or so of the recorded class. And the, um, uh, the audio is posted to our uh, podcast feed. So we have a, the Mythgard Academy podcast on iTunes that you can get the audio through. So you can get the video, the audio, or you can go to iTunes U and uh, get both there, as well as a, a, a PDF of the, the slides. So you can have the slides if you want to look at those with the audio or something like that. So um, anyway, so that's um, that's 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 uh, the plan. So I, as I say, tomorrow night, Thursday, twenty second, Bilbo and Frodo's birthday. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna kick off the celebration of Signum and Mythgard, and I'll talk about all the events and all the awesome stuff that we're doing. So I hope you'll be able to to join me for that. And 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 I wanted to make sure to tell you tonight about the Asimov thing next week. Because you know you need to get started reading, as well as keeping up with your dispossessed reading. You now have an extra uh, small but fun reading assignment. Uh, so uh, you know, I hope that uh, you know you'll be you'll be able to you'll be able to keep up with your homework here over the next over the next week. Um, okay. Um, all right. Uh, let's talk about the dispossessed. Um, I find this book really fascinating, and one thing I will say, if you're reading it for the first time, um, this is not a book that's very familiar to me. Um, I had not read this. This is now the second book that I had never read before it was it was elected. The first was uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, uh, of course, which we did last year, and which I loved, by the way. It was one of the uh, one of the books that I just really adored discovering with you guys as we as we did it together. I had never read this book. I've read some Le Guin, but not sort of as much as I should have, really, I think. Um, but I, so I was very glad, uh, very excited to read this book. And um, anyway, so what I was want to say to people who are reading it for the first time, um, this book is an amazing experience the second time through. Uh, so I would definitely encourage you to sort of read and to read it through to the end and then review with us as we go through if you can. Um, but uh, yeah, it's um, it's it's kind of uh, yeah, Nancy, you get an amazing amount out of this uh, the second time. So much that just kind of went past me that I wasn't even really able to process properly the first time through because uh, I didn't have enough context for it really um, is stuff that that really just kind of lit up the second time through so um, yeah Noam says it has an even bigger effect the tenth time through Noam I can completely believe that um, and it's very clear to me you know from the start that this is just a uh, this is this is a brilliant book and um, the I absolutely I just love the structure of this book. I know that might sound like a really um, uh, I don't know kind of cold analytical thing to say, but the the way that the chapters are interlaced um, and the way that the interlacing of the chapters itself connects with the theme is just mind-blowingly brilliant. So I hope we'll uh, we'll. Well, I trust we'll get a good chance to to talk about some of that stuff as we go. I'm not gonna not gonna talk about that too much today because the, the that theme really kind of grows as we go through the book, and we'll 
I will talk about it more a little bit later. By the way, I found this a really difficult book to make a reading schedule for, you know, to make a class schedule for, because the chapters are really meaty. And I was tempted to do one uh, class per chapter. But that was, I mean, there are 12, 12, 13 chapters. I mean, I could have done it in 12 classes, but that's a long time. Um, and it would have been only like 25 pages per, um, you know, 25 to 30 pages or so per week, which would have been doable. But anyway, I was just, I felt like the individual chapters were just a little bit too short. I, I wanted to do a little bit more than that. But two chapters is really a lot. Um, so... It's uh, it was tough. So the way I, the kind of con that's why the, the schedule. If you've looked through the schedule that's coming up, um, a schedule for eight weeks, um, and the the rationale behind that basically was to do two chapters at a time, knowing I'm not going to be able to keep up with that pace. So I scheduled two uh, Q and A slash catch up sessions for you know uh, week four and week eight um, to, uh, uh, to you know see if we can kind of kind of get it all uh, together there a little bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, Michael says that he found the structure very disorienting. I did too, Michael, especially, um, especially the first time reading it. I, and I, uh, I, I mean, I got the fact, I tumbled to the fact that in chapter two, we were talking about the same person in his youth before too long. Cause I mean, they call him by his name, so it's not like it's a mystery. You know, it's not like she's trying to be coy about that. Um, but it required some serious reorientation. Um, another thing I will say, I, I was, of course, reading this as I read uh, everything uh, in audiobook form. And uh, one of the results, the narrator who reads the audiobook form, uh, who reads the, the unabridged audio on Audible, doesn't really pause that much when there's a gap, like when it, in chapter two, right, when it jumps uh, several years forward, right, in, into a new section. She didn't pause that long. Um, they didn't really register when I was listening to it. So I kept getting really confused, uh, Michael, not only just like, okay, we've shifted back, but but the temporal shifts that happen within the chapter, right? It's like, oh, no, wait, Shevik's eight now. Okay, all right, all right. But it, it always uh, took me a while to catch up with that. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, and Yana, you're right. It is... Uh, very strange uh, to be introduced to the main character through a mob trying to kill him. Um, well, sort of, though, Yana, even the sort of the strangeness of their attempt to kill him, not just the fact that they want to kill him being strange, but the how, like, pitifully amateurish is their attempt to kill him, right? How bad they are at being a mob um, uh, is was another thing that I found kind of sort of disorienting and though nancy you're right they do like succeed in killing somebody right and that the 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 way in which the fatality gets kind of passed off is it was itself a little bit disconcerting right and to me this is a big part of the whole experience at the beginning of this i mean really with any fantasy and science fiction work whenever you begin it there's always this initial work to be done right this this question that always is in front of you in chapter one of any new work of speculative fiction, namely, where are we, right? What is this world that we're in? What are the rules of this world? What kind of societies, what kind of beings are these, right? You know, all the, the kinds of uh, safe assumptions that you can make when you're reading a work of realistic fiction, usually can make, um, are kind of taken away from you, right? So robbed of those, that, that assumed framework, 
um, we always have the job of kind of trying to not leap to conclusions too much and to, to sort of build our understanding of this uh, from within as we go. That, of course, is immediately made um, much more, well, the focal point here um, becomes, it fairly quickly becomes social, right? That is to say, uh, it seems after the, you know, it doesn't seem like very many paragraphs before it seems fairly clear, okay, we are on a word, these are humans, right? We're not sort of imagining alien races. Um, the question is these societies, right? And we have the interaction between these two worlds. And, and a large part of the focus of that first chapter, right, is about sort of the meeting of these two different worlds. Um, and I love the way in which the point of view of the reader is manipulated during that first chapter, because we're following Shevik and Shevik's perspective. Like the narrator seems to kind of take Shevik's point of view for granted. I mean, it's very clear, right? As we're going through and reading, you know, his conversations with the uh, the Orasti doctor, right, who's with him on the ship, um, his uh, uh, Shevik's perspective is the normative one, right? We're we're kind of prompted as readers uh, to think alongside Shevik and experience alongside Shevik, and to see the Urasti culture and the Urasti artifacts and the Urasti practices as alien, right? That's the weird stuff. But of course, it's not really true. That is, from, from our perspective, it's not really true. It's not like we actually are coming from, a, from the standpoint of familiarity with him, right? Both societies are equally foreign to us, and yet we're sort of maneuvered into the position of, of uh, sort of being on Shevik's side, if you see what I mean. Um, and that's especially interesting Given that you know, if we can kind of if we can if we can extract ourselves from that perspective and look at it, in fact, the Urasti culture is the one that sounds much more like ours, right? That in fact, the um, the the societal perspective that the narrative encourages us to accept as normative, right? To accept as the, as the baseline, um, as the default, Shevik's point of view, um, is in fact the one that's weird, and the Urasti one is the one that I think is much more familiar to us, and so therefore the experience that we get, the, the, the sort of disorienting experience that I get as a reader in being invited to sort of first to look at a society which is more like my own with new eyes from, from this outside perspective. Um, and that's really neat. But then at the same time, I'm kind of looking around either side being like, well, wait a second, what is this perspective I'm looking at it from? Right? That's what I don't really understand. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Nancy Fosberg says that it it uh, reminded her a little of Watership Down uh, and how we had to make sense of something that's familiar to us but totally foreign to the narrator. Yeah, Nancy, thinking of like like for instance that uh, remember that passage when they first get to Watership Down and and we get that description of the clouds moving by right and how kind of freaky the 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 rabbits find just like the motion of the clouds overhead and and things like then like the. Uh, the, the humming of the pylon line and, you know, all these things that are that are familiar to us, but that we're invited to see from this alien perspective. I agree. I, it is um, it is a lot uh, like that. Um, 
Jennifer uh, Minor says that she was uh, particularly fascinated by by the wall. So was I, Jennifer. Let's look at that. That uh, that is my first slide. Okay, um, I do want to start as Jennifer has suggested with the opening image, right? Because I think this is a really uh, this is a really significant image. It's a really powerful image. Um, all right, there was a wall. It did not look important. It was built of uncut rocks, roughly mortared. An adult could look right over it, and even a child could climb it. Where it crossed the roadway, instead of having a gate, it degenerated into mere geometry, a line, an idea of boundary. But the idea was real. It was important. For seven generations, there had been nothing in the world more important than that wall. Like all walls, it was ambiguous, two-faced. What was inside it, and what was outside it, depended upon which side of it you were on. Looked at from one side, the wall enclosed a barren 60-acre field called the Port of Anaris. On the field were a couple of large gantry cranes, a rocket pad, three warehouses, a truck garage, and a dormitory. <laughs> Sorry, I think I... Yeah, accident. Sorry, I accidentally made a yellow dot on the page before. I just noticed it. The dormitory looked durable, grimy, and mournful. It had no gardens, no children. Plainly, nobody lived there, or was even meant to stay there long. It was, in fact, a quarantine. The wall shut in not only the landing field, but also the ships that came down out of space, and the men that came on the ships, and the worlds they came from, and the rest of the universe. It enclosed the universe, leaving Anaris outside, free. Looked at from the other side, the wall enclosed Anaris. The whole planet was inside it, a great prison camp, cut off from other worlds and other men in quarantine. All right. What do you notice about this? And again, for those of you who are new, um, I, I, I practice that I uh, very strongly encourage. Uh, I, I always read through the passages. Um, and while I'm reading, I encourage you to take that time to type in comments. And, and I especially encourage uh, very particular observations. Um, if there are sentences or ideas uh, that are that are mentioned there, that you that you would uh, draw them out and and uh, point to them in the chat for me. Okay, great. Um, yeah, <laughs> Kay says, I love how the sentence, it did not look important, immediately makes me sit up and go, oh, this must be important. Yeah, it's a, it's um, the first two sentences, Kay, are really brilliant. Right? I mean, they're, they're extremely simple, right? There was a wall. That's a really interesting first sentence on it. Sorry, the first sentence of a novel is always an important moment, right? Um, there was a wall. It did not look important. Starting with two really simple uh you know, curt sentences like that is uh, is 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 a fascinating choice. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and good, Noam. I agree that that, that emphasis at the beginning, which uh, which helps, I think, not only not just to explain, but even really to contextualize. Okay, the the importance, right? What kind? In what way is it important? What kind of importance does it have? Um, Noam's point about how it's uh, it's not much in physical terms, um, but from the idea point of view, it's as big as the whole universe. Yeah, the um, the the fact that it, I love how it 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 tapers off to to mere geometry, right? Um, the wall, the barrier, becomes mathematical, which I think is really important. Uh, in context, again, that's another one of those things that I never would have uh, thought was important until I was reading it the second time, and I'm like, oh yeah, math important. Um, but anyway, yeah. So it's just 
it's just it's just a line right and the wall itself is a wimpy wall it's a really important wall but it's a it's a low wall like kids can climb over it and do apparently and can just come up here and sit on it um so even that itself notice some of the things that we learn well, well let me just ask this question what things do we learn about the culture of Anaris from the description of the wall? Tell me what we've learned about Anaris, about this culture that we are in. And I, no, don't tell me anything that we don't learn in this passage, right? Um, when I ask these questions, I want you to play along, right? Don't tell me anything that happens later in the book. Uh, I mean, that stuff is going to be important later on, but not right now. Right now, this is a, this. We've just picked up this book for the first time. We've gotten no further than this, right? What do we know? What do we know after paragraph one? Okay, good. They are isolated, but as Michael says, they are self-isolated. Yes, yes, good. That's So they are isolated by choice. The wall is not a wall that's forcibly keeping people out. They It marks the boundary, and the boundary is really important, but there is voluntary compliance with this boundary, right? They have no uh, no desire uh, to leave it. Good. Jennifer, they have, they have space travel. Good. I mean, that's an important thing for us to, to keep in mind. And, and Jennifer, that seems to make this whole question of quarantine what immediately makes it more profound, right? How we have this, from the one side, that wall encloses a 60-acre field, right? But from the other but from the other way of looking at it, it encloses, the, the entire universe is enclosed in that because it's the space pad. Um, so that is obviously very important. Um, yeah, good. Michael follows, followed up his conversation, his comment uh, by saying the wall is more about their will and their desires uh, than about a physical boundary. Yes, yes. Um, and good, Nancy, that quarantine language, right? Um, it's not just separation that we're talking about here, right? There's a, uh, there's a particular force to the separation. It's a particular emphasis there. That idea of quarantine, that idea of contamination. Um, there is... Um, Yes, Nancy, uh, the universe outside of is being seen as dangerous and possibly diseased, something that might spread if it were allowed to cross that line. But of course, it works the other way too, right? As that gets reversed in the last, uh, in the last sentence, Anaris. From the other side of the line, it's Anaris that is a world in quarantine, right? So maybe they're the ones with the disease that might get spread somehow. Right. So, um, so yeah, good, good. That, that, that I think is a, that idea of quarantine. Uh, seems to me a, a almost as important a concept, almost as important a theme from this passage as the wall itself. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, good, excellent. So I'm looking through lots of comments here. You guys are doing, uh, making really wonderful observations. Good. Yeah, yeah, Rachel, I agree. There's, it's, it's, it's again, it's, it's not a barrier. Um, division is the word that Rachel uses, which Rachel, I think, is a really good one, right? Again, it's not, it's not a real obstacle. That's to me, that's the, 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 the single most fascinating thing about the wall, right? Um, where it crosses the road, it's just a line. It's not even a gate. We'd expect a gate, right? I mean, if it was like a real, if, it, if this is a wall that means business, right? I mean, you're sure the road can go through. The road would be a gate and like a checkpoint and, and something, right? But no, no, it's just when, when the road comes, it just becomes a line, right? Um, which anyone could step across. But of course, anyone could climb over the wall as well. Um, so Rachel, yes, it's more about establishing a division than it is about uh, forming, 
forming an obstacle. Um, and uh, yeah, good, good. Um, and good, yeah, Brian emphasizes with the quarantine business, the element of the element of fear. Yeah, yeah, and, and that uh, it makes you wonder how fundamental that is, right? Um, I agree, Brian, that that does seem to be one of the first impressions given, right? Um, and the fear seems to go both ways, right? With the way that we're, the way that we're introduced to this here, the way that we're encouraged to see this wall from either face, right? The fear does seem to go both ways. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Good. And yeah, good. Kate Neville points out the, uh, the the description of the dormitory and stuff, right? The dormitory looked, uh, see, what, what's the word there? Looked, dura looked durable, grimy, and mournful. It had no gardens, no children. Plainly, nobody lived there or was meant even to stay there long. Um, and as uh, Kate very rightly points out, this makes it sound like an unsociable place in a place that ordinarily has these other things, right? It, it does suggest a kind of expectation, right? What What's normal for a dormitory, right? What should a place where people live look like? And we get we get an interesting glimpse of that, right? Gardens, children, right? Um, presumably not dingy, not mournful, right? Um, yeah, yeah, good. But 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 this place this place is right. This place is this place is different. So again, notice Kate there to even before we start interacting with any urasti right or before shevet gets onto the urasti ship we're already defining the culture by difference see what i mean like you know that is we we, we learn about um anurasti culture by being told how it's different from the urasti culture that we find shevet being becoming immersed in there in chapter one on the ship, um, but we but that starts sooner, right, Kate? As you point out here, that we're already defining interesting uh, uh, culture by difference, right? Um, we we get our first glimpse of what positive, normative, healthy, interesting. Uh, uh, living places are like by the by being told what this one isn't right uh so that's uh that i think is really is really interesting um good philip that's a really interesting observation phillips uh says uh philip menzies says that they have jumped they have lumped sorry lumped the whole universe into the area inside the wall showing their attitude towards everything that is not their own yeah, it certainly does imply that, doesn't it? I mean, it does imply that... Um, now, I, we're not told... These words in this first paragraph, these are the words of the narrator, right? It's not... This is not Shevik's thought. This isn't... We're not told explicitly this is how the NRST are thinking, right? But we are being shown what this wall looks like from either side, right? So... I think we do have some justification in thinking that when the narrator is describing it from the NRST side, we're getting at least some 
hints of the animistic perspective on this. Um, so, yeah, Philip, I mean, it's just, it's fascinating. The image that it goes on to create, right, about, you know, and saying um, uh, it enclosed not only the landing field, but also the ships and the men that came on the ships, right, and, and the worlds they came from and the entire universe, right? Um, the entire universe, from the Anarosti perspective, the entire universe can be enclosed in a wall, right? Um, the whole universe is like contained in that barren 60-acre field. Um, and there is a kind of, potentially anyway, there is a, there is a level of dismissiveness there. Or at least, I mean, I think I think we can we can perhaps speculate that 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 might be so. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Ian points out we get the impression that it's a barren place. Now, again, Ian, we could argue, right, as Kate was suggesting, that maybe it's not all barren because the barrenness of this is being emphasized. So again, maybe we're establishing something through the observation of of, of difference rather than um, than sort of claiming this to be the norm. And yet, Ian, I would agree with you to the extent of saying, nevertheless, this is the first visual image that we get, right? Um, our first introduction to this world in, in paragraph one of chapter one of this book is this barren, dingy, mournful place, right? And so even if we kind of are led to believe or led to understand that this is not normal, it's still our first impression, right? And I think that does, Ian, count for something. Um, good as K. Ben Abraham was saying at the same time, Anaris sounds dour. I, I, it's a great word, Kay. I agree. Uh, the, she's looking at the adjectives that are being used. Barren, durable, grimy, mournful. Um, yet there is a single powerful other adjective dropped in the middle of that, which is free. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Kay, there's a way, right, in which you can look at that, and especially from a, a wider perspective of the story, say... Yeah, those adjectives are, are Anaris in a nutshell, right? Uh, barren, durable, grimy, mournful, but free. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I'll buy that. I'll buy that as <laughs> a description of Anaris. Um, that's great. That's great. Um, okay, good. Uh, Excellent, excellent. Good. Rachel was just pointing out that free was the first description of it that we're given. Um, yes, good, good, excellent. Um, and James Stevens points out that, of course, both sides of the wall see the other side of the wall as small, right? Um, I mean, again, you've got this one tiny little patch on a big planet, right? I mean, big compared to the 60-acre patch, right? Um, so it looks like you've got the whole wide world in this one little thing in which the rest of the universe is contained, right? Um, but of course, from there, from the point of view on the inside of that wall, right? From the point of view of the uh, the men who are in the spaceships that land uh, in that port, you know, from their side of the wall, the wall encloses this dingy, uh, yeah, dingy, grimy, you know, barren little world, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Good, good. Um, all right. All right, so, sorry, you guys are doing awesome here today. Um, now, good, Neil uh, Ottenstein points out that the, the, the 
it's it seems interesting that we get the dinginess and the barrenness there in the port. It does suggest, I mean, this is the welcome they roll out to guests, right? Um, they will know this is the first impression that is made upon visitors to their world. And they they don't seem bothered, right? Um, not only do we get like no bunting and no you know parade, but um, they don't even they don't even they don't even bother. By NRST standards, this place is is run down, right? This place is 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 is, is barren, is mournful. Um, yeah, yeah, good, good. Um, okay, excellent. Let's 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 carry on. Everyone who bet the under today is going to be really excited. Um, yeah, Jennifer Mother says she can't tell if ships ever take off from Anaris. Yeah, it's unclear. Um, from this paragraph, whether or not the NRSD themselves have space travel, right? Whether they have rockets um, and ever go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Ah, oh, all right, Peter. I'll I'll end with your comment, and then we're really going to move on to the next one. Um, Peter says that the the description limits the world. For seven generations, there had been nothing more important. Uh, there had been nothing in the world more important. Um, Peter's pointing out that the, 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 the very tenses of that sentence suggest that change is afoot, right? Um, the use of the past perfect tense. For seven generations, there had been nothing more important, right? Had been. That means an action that was... So the perfect tense means something that's completed, right? So in modern English, when you use the helping verb have, you're using the uh, the perfect tense, right? So the past, per, the past, present, or future perfect tense uh, is determined by the tense of the helping verb, right? So uh, uh, had been, have been, and will have been, right, is past, present, and future perfect tenses, respectively. And it denotes an action which is completed in that time frame. So past perfect means an action that had, that, that, was completed in the past, right? Present perfect an action which is being which is now completed, right? So when you say you have finished your exam, right? That means at this moment in the present time that action is completed. Future perfect, which by the way is my favorite tense in modern English. The future perfect tense uh, denotes an action which will be computed completed in the future, right? So uh, you know tomorrow uh, by tomorrow we will have. Uh, uh, we will have been, um, you know, running Signum classes for five years, right? Um, we will have been around for five years tomorrow. Um, that's that's how you do the future tense. So so again, back to Peter's point, um, the past perfect tense in that sentence, right? For seven generations, there had been nothing in the world more important than that wall. Um, is uh, th that's done now, right? The importance of the wall, the primacy of the wall is over now, right? That's interesting, right? And of course, what do we see? What, what, what is the act, What is the first action of this chapter? Somebody crossing the wall, right? Somebody breaking the quarantine, an NRST guy leaving. Um, and we don't know all the full significance of that, but we do know that people want to kill him and are calling him a traitor, right? That comes in right away. Um, all right. Okay, here we are. Ready? Notice what happens as soon as he takes off, right? 
he's uh, uh, they sort of rush onto the ship and they take off as quickly as they can because folks are throwing rocks and someone's already been killed. Um, look at the description here. The edge of the plane flashed with the brightness of light on water, light across a, dis across a distant sea. There was no water in those deserts. What was he seeing then? The stone plane was no longer plain, but hollow, like a huge bowl full of sunlight. As he watched in wonder, it grew shallower, spilling out its light. All at once a line broke across it, abstract, geometric, the perfect section of a circle. Beyond that arc was blackness. This blackness reversed the whole picture, made it negative. The real, the stone part of it, was no longer concave and full of light, but convex, reflecting, rejecting light. It was not a plane or a bowl, but a sphere, a ball of white stone falling down in blackness, falling away. It was his world. I don't understand, he said aloud. Isn't that awesome? I mean, that uh, is just amazing. But okay, first of all, you see what we, you see what we get here, right? Uh, let's start. Let's start with the the clearest and simplest thing, right? Tell me about the similarities between this passage and the last one, right? What do we see here that is like what we saw in that opening paragraph with the wall? Uh, yeah, Tom, we are getting something very like the wall again, right? How? More? Tell me about it. What's the wall? How is it like the wall? The line is like the wall. Neil, yeah. Uh, and notice how just as we had something which was real in the sense of being physical, which uh, becomes geometry, right? Becomes a mathematical object. Um, we, we get that same thing here, right? What else? Good. Noam, yes. The, the, that point of view is very important, important and that opposites depend on it, right? Exactly, Mark. That was the image that struck me so much uh, when reading this, you know, that, that image, the bowl versus the globe, right? The world is, he's, he, he's over a con, you know, the world looks convex. In fact, uh, in the, in the, the paragraph just before where I started this, this quotation here, he, he knows the name of the valley, right? It's the Grand Valley. He's, he's been there, right? So he's seeing this feature of his world that he recognizes, and has been in, and then he's backing up from it, and as he backs up from it, notice how it becomes more and more strange, right? More and more abstract. Um, what was a desert valley flashes like the brightness of light on water, but he knows there isn't any water there, right? It's a stone plain, but now it looks like a huge bowl full of sunlight. Right, so it's 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 the same valley, and then Mark, we get that shift, right? Then when he sees the curve of the edge of the planet, and he keep suddenly it switches around, right? It's like he's crossed the wall, and he's seeing the other face of the wall. He's seeing it from the other side. No, it's not convex. It's concave, right? It's not a valley. It's not the valley that I've been in, surrounded by mountains that I've seen. It's the edge of the planet, right? It's concave, not convex. Um, and yes, Michael, you're right. We get a lot of contrast in the passage. Light and and blackness, water and desert, convex and concave. Yes, 
um, this sort of meeting and juxtaposition of opposites, but not just just not just juxtaposition, right? It's not just the light over here and the darkness over here, because things aren't like that in this book, right? The meeting between Urasti and Anurasti cultures is not like light meeting darkness, right? What we get is the one thing flipping around and becoming another, that thing that we thought was convex and us are suddenly seeing from a different point of view and from, from a different vantage point, literally, it in fact actually is convex, right? Um, yes, yes. Kristen Thompson says it's almost uh, like going from single dimensional to multi-dimensional. Exactly. Kristen, though, it's interesting, right? The actual description works the other way around, right? He's what he was seeing was a complex object, right? The the stone plane, right? Um, with its contours and complexities um, becomes a simple ball shape and then becomes a sphere, right? Um, and, you know, we've got the, the a line broke across it, abstract, geometric, the perfect section of a circle, right? Um, so, again, with the math, again, as several of you were, were, were pointing out, notice how it's sort of resolving itself conceptually into math. And there's a, in both cases, both with the line, right, which is sort of the mathematical extension of the wall, the mathematical or conceptual extension of the wall, um, it's pointing to its status only as a divider, not as a barrier. Um, so to here, what really breaks upon him when that moment when he now is seeing his world from this completely different point of view and understanding it in a different way, seeing it as it were from the other side of the wall, that's the moment when, when the math kind of breaks through and he sees it's the perfect section of a circle. In fact, it's, it's a, it's a sphere. Um, yeah, yeah, um, good. Uh, Noam points out that the you know the 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 lead character admits that he doesn't understand, um, but we need to figure out what he doesn't understand. Yeah, um, we're getting a description of his somewhat bewildered impressions, right? Um, but it's another thing that I think is really interesting about the point of view, the about the position that we as uh, readers are placed in in this story it makes sense to us, right? It seems like it makes more sense to us that we're given more or a, a clearer way to interpret, to a clear framework in which to put these observations than Shevik himself is, who is much more disoriented uh, than, um, than we are. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, 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 Lance Crimmin says it's like a metaphor for how the two cultures view his planet. His is concave, which is receiving and full of light. Theirs is 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 convex or rejecting and drab uh, and stony. Yeah, Lance. I mean, in this passage especially, we can see it in the wall passage in in, in the first paragraph. Here, even more, I think we get some of those value things, right? Like I was suggesting with the light and the darkness, right? Um, your uh, your uh, construction of that is 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 much more. Uh, elaborate and satisfying than mine, thinking about it that way. But but yes, the way that this seems to map on to this fundamental meeting of these two different worlds, these two different cultures, um, 
I, I, I agree. I think that that's a, that's a really, um, a really important way to, to look at that. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, Good. Yeah, as uh, Nancy points out, uh, says in the uh, in the in the chat room, they're talking about how Shevik himself is a physicist and he knows this stuff theoretically, but can't understand it when he comes across it physically. I agree, Nancy. I would say. I mean, again, to this point, we don't know that yet. Right on page six, I don't think we know. Do we know yet that Shevik is a physicist? Does it mention that before? I don't know, but it's okay. I mean, even once we learn that. What that does is prompts us to think again about the last line, right? Um, bear with me here for a second. He ends up by saying, I don't understand, right? Now admit it, some of you, when he says, I don't understand, are tempted to say, oh man, come on, it's not that hard, right? You're on a rocket, you're pulling away from your planet, you know. You could say, yes, your planet is a globe. Did you think your world was flat? Did you think it was really a bowl? Like, what don't you understand about this, right? That is, there's, I think, a temptation to feel a little patronizing towards him. And again, because we are given a context and we're, what's more, sitting and uh, sitting quietly and, you know, probably not physically disoriented in the way that Shevik is. But of course, Nancy, exactly as you point out later on, we understand, come to understand, he's a physicist. Okay, actually... It's not that he's ignorant. It's not that he can't parse what he's seeing. It's not that he's surprised to be like, oh, I live on a round world? No way, right? Obviously, that's not sure. So in other words, our own understanding of what Shevik means when he says, I don't understand, changes, right? And what it is he doesn't understand becomes less clear. And how much more we understand than he does also becomes less clear, right? And that's really cool, the way that we as readers are kind of put into uh, into that uh, position, I think is really neat. Um, but, uh, okay, okay. Now, so with this setup and following, you know, Lance, on, on, on the suggestion that you are making, I want to go to look at, you know, this, the, 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 the concept which really dominates chapter one, which is the meeting of the two different cultures, right? The, uh, the Anarasti and Urasti meeting here. So let's just look at a couple passages. The first one I want to look at is the tail end of the conversation that Shevik and the doctor, and please, I've forgotten the doctor's name. If you could remind me of the doctor's name, I want to just keep calling him the doctor all the way through. Um, but there's some irony there, right? That he keeps calling Shevik, Dr. Shevik, and, and Shevik is like, I'm not a doctor, you're a doctor, right? Um, uh, so even that sort of the question of identity is interesting. So maybe actually, for the sake of that uh, of that symmetry, I should just keep calling him the doctor. But uh, anyway, um, there, so I, the conversation that I, that I, that we're, that we're going to be coming out on the tail end here is the one about women and about uh, equality, you know, gender equality. Okay, um, uh, Kimoi, thank you. Uh, all right. Um, <laughs> Jennifer Miner says, as long as the Whovians don't get confused uh, when I'm talking about the doctor. A, a perfectly fair point, uh, Jennifer. Um, okay. All right. So he, this is after he's gotten all upset. The doctor's gotten all upset. 
Um, and see, look, he's calling the doctor right here in this passage. That's fine. That's what I'll keep calling. Um, of course, I have known highly intelligent women, women who could think just like a man, the doctor said, hurriedly, aware that he had been almost shouting, that he had, Shevik thought, been pounding his hands against the locked door and shouting. Shevik turned the conversation. We'll come back to that passage later on. Uh, Shevik turned the conversation, but he went on thinking about it. This matter of superior, superiority and inferiority must be a central one in Erasti's social life. If to respect himself, Kamoe had, had to consider half the human race as inferior to him, how then did women manage to respect themselves? Did they consider men inferior? How did all that affect their sex lives? So, okay, what do we learn from this? What do we get from this? Good. Michael points out that Shevik himself isn't named for a while. It's not like a hugely long time, Michael, but but yeah, we don't get his name. We're not introduced to him by name at the beginning, right? He's just the man that people are throwing rocks at at the very beginning. Um, what do we learn about Urasti and Enarasti culture from this passage? Okay, Yana, good. We um, The... Hmm. I'm not sure what we can conclude about sex. I mean, we're told that um, uh, NRST society is very free sexually. Yes, we're told that. This passage itself, I think, doesn't betray that super clearly. Um, but good, yeah, so Jennifer, very clearly, the Erasti culture... Um, uh, the Urasti culture has a very clear gender division and the Enarasti culture obviously much less so, right? That's sort of the starting point that we get there. Um, and uh, Kristen, we do have this sense of a, a, a very egalitarian culture, right? Um, even the, even the, the sort of the initial play, um, when, when the doctor asks Shevik, um, do you treat men and women exactly the same on an Aris? And he laughs, right? He's like, that would be a waste of perfectly good equipment, right? And the doctor's embarrassed. He's like, oh, no, no, I didn't mean sexually, right? Um, that is, what do we see from, from Shevik's response, right? His first response is that the question is a completely alien one to him, right? Um, the question is not one that's asked in his, you know, do we treat people, you know, equality is not an issue, right, that they talk about. It's not a concept that they discuss. When it's raised, he misunderstands it. He's like, no, we don't treat everybody equally, right? Um, and in fact, they can't even find a way to talk about it. They can't even find a way that they can communicate on the subject until they come back to the concrete question of what is or is not women's work, right? So talking about labor, they get there. Um, but, uh, okay, yes, good. Brian, the idea that uh, Urasti culture is highly hierarchical, not just in terms of gender, but in terms of occupations and societal and social roles. Absolutely, Brian. And we can certainly see that, you know, have seen that prior to this passage in the disdain with which the doctor talks about the, uh, the crew of the ship, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. 
Um, good. Philip Menzies points out that there's uh, we seem to have, on the one hand, one society which is more advanced technologically and the other one which is more primitive technologically. It's an Erasti ship, after all. It's not an Erasti ship. And we haven't had any evidence that there are an Erasti ships. In fact, it seems like, again, we don't know all that much yet, but it seems very unlikely that there are Anarasti ships, given the fact that when a person from Anaris is going to depart the planet, he is considered a traitor by everybody else. Presumably, if there were Anarasti crew flying Anarasti ships uh, out of the port of Anaris regularly, they'd be a little bit more habituated to that idea, right? So, so yes. But anyway, so uh, Philip points out that we've got you know the the, the more technologically advanced society, which. Uh, is seems to be less less egalitarian than the other, and so Philip, I do think what that sort of challenges, in a sense, is the concept of what is an advanced society or a more advanced society. Um, how you define advanced society is likely to depend very much on which side of the wall you're standing on at the time, right? And again, this to me is the great um, work that is done <clears throat> by the image of the wall in the very beginning, by the image of the planet that he sees as he's passing away from it. Um, we are prompted at the very beginning to question exactly things like, to question any of that kind of objectivity, right? Um, we see that things look very different each side uh, of the wall. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, and good, yes, James points out that both sides see the other as inferior. That does seem to be, that does seem to be the case, though it, notice also that in this discussion, both of them are curious about the other, right? We don't see, neither, neither one of them speaks or acts with disdain towards the other, right? Um, they both seem to be sort of genuinely curious about uh, about the trying, really wanting to understand, right? Um, what do we learn from this? Again, I want to I want to talk both. What do we learn about Uros and what do we learn about Anaris from this passage? When first aboard the ship, in those long hours of fever and despair, he had been distracted, sometimes pleased and sometimes irritated, by a grossly simple sensation, the softness of the bed. Though only a bunk, its mattress gave under his weight, and with caressing suppleness, it yielded to him, yielded so insistently that he was, still, always conscious of it while falling asleep. Both the pleasure and the irritation it produced in him were decidedly erotic, there was also the hot air nozzle towel device, the same kind of effect, a tickling, and the design of the furniture in the officer's lounge, the smooth plastic curves into which stubborn wood and steel had been forced, the smoothness and delicacy of surfaces and textures. Were these not also faintly, pervasively erotic? He knew himself well enough to be sure that a few days without talk there, even under great stress, should not get him so worked up that he felt a woman in every tabletop. Not unless the woman was really there. Were Erosti cabinet makers all celibate? He gave it up. He would find out soon enough on Urus. All right. Um, what do we learn here? 
um, okay, good. James, that's a very, that's a safe observation and a good place to start. He is not used to luxury or softness. Yes. Okay. So we do get a background about the culture. Now we don't know why exactly, right? That is, there could be several explanations for this. Is he not used to luxury and softness because his culture has none or because they don't want any? Do you see what I mean about the difference there, right? Um, do they merely lack the wherewithal to make this stuff? But they would if they could, and they do the best they can with what they have to make things soft and luxurious. They just don't have the resources to pull it off, right? That's one possibility. Other possibility is that it's not um, uh, they actually choose not to, right? That it's, it's something that they positively uh, don't want. Um, Yeah, Kay points out that luxury irritates him as well as pleasing him, which would suggest that his culture disdains it for some reason. If they didn't have it, he'd be wallowing with unadulterated joy. I agree, Kay. If this were like if luxury were a thing that they tried to get as much as they could and they just can't most of the time, due to lack of resources or whatever, then yeah, you'd think he'd be like, oh man, this is what I've been looking for all my life. But yeah, the 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 mixture of pleasure and irritation that he describes does um does suggest that there's something that he now on the one hand k i mean it could merely just be a way a sort of a testimony to the fact that it's he's so unused to it right um but but i'm i'm tempted to go along you know to think along the same directions k that it does suggest that there's something actively undesirable but there's something that bothers him about the luxury um more than just uh more than just it's being more than he's used to, right? Um, yeah. So what about the eroticism? Um, The way that he describes the eroticism of the luxuries on the ship um, kind of remind me of what I always feel like saying to Freudians. Uh, that, you know, there's a, still many literary critics who love the Freudian thing, you know, and, uh, um, and do Freudian readings of, uh, of you know, everything. And... I mean, I mean, I guess it can be kind of a fun game. They're not one that I enjoy particularly. Um, but listen to me speaking so slightingly of it, as I shouldn't. Um, but often when I hear a literary critic of the Freudian school talk about how per pervasively eroticized a particular work of literature is, um, what I often want to say in response is, well, I just am not sure whether your analysis of the eroticism of this text tells us more about the text or about you, right? Um, is it 
is the text fixated on, you know, sort of repressed sexuality? Um, you know, is it demonstrating repressed sexuality? Uh, or is it the critic, <laughs> right? Um, who is demonstrating his or her own, you know, obsession with this. Um, so, uh, um, anyway, I, I, um, find the same kind of question here, right? That is to say, Shevik's observations about the eroticism that he perceives in the furniture, does that tell us more about the the sort of the status of sex in erosti culture or the status of sex in anerosti culture, right? Um, uh, good, K. Shevik believes it's not him. Right, and but we only have his word on that. He knew himself well enough, as she, as she quotes. Um, so first of all, he says, this isn't a question of him uh, being sort of sexually desperate and seeing, you know, as as he he, he, he in his terms, right? Um, uh, you know, he says he knew himself well to be sure that a few days away from Tuckver, who we will learn later on is his partner. Um, even under great stress, should not get him so worked up that he felt a woman in every tabletop. That is, he is well aware of the possibility that it's just him, right? That he is occupied with fantasies of sex to such an extent that he's projecting it outwards, right, onto the furniture and the fixtures. Um, but he's claiming, no, no, that's that's... That's not the case. He's only been away from his partner for a couple of days, right? Um, he's pretty sure it's not him. He thinks this is telling. This is saying something about the Urosti cabinet makers, right? But notice that his first theory. I mean, he gives it up. He doesn't really have a a, a good theory. But it's interesting that his um, um, his the theory that he does come to is that the Urosti cabinet makers are celibate. Right, that they themselves don't experience sex, and so therefore sublimate their sexual passion through their craftsmanship. Right, um, that the work that they do in designing chairs um, and you know hot air blowers and mattresses uh, is like the channel through which they express their pent up sexuality. That seems to be his theory. Right. Um, yeah. Um, now, Lance says, uh, says, I think he sees the feminine in their objects, which is jarring when they so forcefully seem to reject the role and value of women. It's like they hate women and yet use feminine shapes and curves everywhere. Yes. Um, and uh, I would say, um, but there's another way that we could look at that same point lens and here i'm wanting to scroll backwards because it was something somebody said a long time ago uh, mm -hmm. um sorry i wanted to i definitely wanted to find this Hmm. Ah, there we go. Noam. It was Noam. Noam said, uh, with all of his gender equality, 
Shevik has some very clear gender division of traits. Yes, yes, yes. Noam, that was what I found so interesting, right? Um, he is seeing a woman in the table. It's not just non-gendered sexuality that he's perceiving. He's seeing a woman in the tabletop, right? Um, and that itself is kind of interesting, right? Uh, you know, that he does, although it's clear that, you know, he made it clear anyway, that in Anarasti society, there is no really sharp division in like social spheres or um, division of labor or anything like that between men and women. Um, and yet, as his initial reaction to do you treat men and women exactly equally shows they don't think of men and women the same, right? They do acknowledge difference and they do, and, and obviously the difference between men and women was something that was very present in his mind. And yet, um, it's, uh, um, It's interesting. Kristen says it makes me wonder what the what gender uh, the uh, uh, the the aotic word for table is versus the word in 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 in, in previk. Yeah, I agree. Um, how that would be reflected? Um, yeah. Um, well, Mick, exactly. That's just it. Um, Mick is pointing to the description with the mattress, right? The uh, um, the caressing suppleness, the insistent yielding of the mattress, and his characterizing that as feminine, right? Is that does that show what does that show us about gender concepts in anorasty culture? Right? Does it suggest a fundamental difference between how men and women should relate to things and to each other? It seems conceivable that some of that is is there, right? Um, yeah. Anyway, this uh, this passage I find interesting chiefly for two reasons. One, it's one I think really interesting example of how we can kind of again look at both sides of the wall here and begin to really. And again, think about the, the position that we as readers are placed in, right? You've got Urasti and, you know, you've got uh, Anaris and, 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 and Urus next to each other. And then we as readers are kind of looking down on both, right? I mean, like, like the cover illustration, like here, where this is us looking at two planets, right? This is, not, this is not us standing on one planet looking at the other, right? This is not the view of either planet from the other one. Um, that's why I really like this. This cover, I saw lots of other covers, but I really like this cover uh, for that reason, right? Because we get the the only thing that's not objective about this cover is that Anaris is eclipsing Uros, right? Uh, so that does suggest a primacy, which I suppose is appropriate since our protagonist is Anaresti. But um, but anyway, so this passage is is one I think one example that that uh, where I think it's really kind of fun to explore the position that we as readers are placed in as we're looking down on these two things or looking out at these or whatever uh, is the fit preposition we should be using. Though doubtless, uh, uh, doubtless Shevik would find it very revealing um, what 
preposition we choose to use, right? So the fact that I said look down on uh, would he would probably find very revealing. Um, but the other thing that I think is interesting about this passage is it sort of it's an it's an illustration of how how rich the descriptions in this book are. I mean, we could talk for a long time more on this passage, um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, one more observation. Okay, uh, I, I I really I really like your point here, and then we'll and then then I will then I will move on. Um, Kay says the use of stubborn wood and steel forced into curves was not erotic in my mind, but dangerous. Force rather than consent doesn't sound egalitarian. Does this represent anarasti sexual ethics coming from Shemek or urasti sexual ethics coming from the cabinet makers? Um, yeah, now I think, okay, my sense of that is that when he's talking about uh, the, the, the stubborn wood and steel here uh, being forced into curves, into smooth curves, um, that's his description. That's his anarasti description of the urasti craftsmanship, right? Um, but even that, how do we take that, right? Do we take this as a reflection of his view or assumptions, perhaps, about anarasti culture or about urasti culture, right? Um, that he is in his mind envisioning the urasti culture as the masculine who is imposing its will forcibly uh, upon the feminine and compelling it into a position of caressing suppleness and insistent yieldingness, right? Um, that's, that, that seems to me totally legitimate. I would totally buy that, that the word choice there reflects Shevik's own assumptions and, and kind of conceptions of urasti culture. Um, uh, in which case you could sort of perhaps follow up his final question by saying maybe it doesn't suggest that Urasti cabinet makers are all celibate. Perhaps it suggests that Urasti cabinet makers are all rapists, right? Um, uh, or you know keepers of 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 uh, you know of of prostitutes or whatever. Um, that seems one way, right, of reading that. But then again, thinking back to Noam's point about the gender concepts that his own language the that 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 again if we're to take these images as being part of his own mental images his own mental vocabulary then what we get here what we see here is potentially so is he saying so the steel and wood the stubborn wood and steel is being forced into these feminine shapes does that mean that the wood and steel was masculine to begin with and it's being forced into a feminine shape in which case, does that suggest something about his concept of masculinity, right? I, I, I'm not saying that I definitely think that, but it's a question, right? I mean, I think it's definitely a question um, that we could that we could ask here. But all right, okay. Anyway, so this chapter presents us with lots of fun of this kind, right? To be uh, exploring and coming to understand, and again, the fact that this is this is the insight that we get, right? This is chapter one of this book. This is how we learn about these cultures um, by seeing them sort of side by side and watching them learn about each other. Um, and uh, that's uh, that's really interesting, right? Um, throughout this, it's important for us to keep that idea of that, that wall, the two sides of the wall, right? 
um, to resist the temptation to view one side as just normal, right? To to slide into the sort of simply uh, the simply interesting viewpoint, right? Um, yeah, K. I agree. Le Guin is an amazing uh, word wordsmith, the craftsmanship of her prose. Um, I don't find I don't find Le Guin's prose ravishing. Like, I mean, there are some people whose um, prose is just so gorgeous that I could read it aloud and I don't even need to understand. But if I didn't know the language, I would find it beautiful, right? I don't find Le Guin's prose appealing in that way, but it is intricate, as you say. It is uh, it is so uh, brilliantly constructed that um, it's not it's not a it's not always a joy to listen to, but it's always um, enormously stimulating to think about. Definitely. Um, okay, let's look at the shift. We should probably talk some about chapter two, um, but uh, uh, anyway, no, well, yeah, no, I'm perfectly fair. I haven't read all of Le Guin. There may be ravishing beauty in her other books. I haven't found it. It's never been my experience with, with Le Guin, but again, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a novice when it comes to, 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 to reading Le Guin, so perhaps I'm, I'm wronging her. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. Um, Nancy Fosberg recommends always coming home. Okay, all right. I'll try. I'll try. Well, let's just get to chapter two. So in chapter two, we go back into the past, right? Um, from this moment, this pivotal moment, this crossing of the boundary, right? This, what seems potentially, um, and Peter here, I'm thinking of the observation you made about the, the seven generations sentence, this potentially epoch defining crossing of a boundary, right? This certainly seems like the beginning of something big, right? And so it's uh, uh, chapter one in that way, it feels like a very, it feels like the beginning of a story, right? And then in chapter two, we go back to the beginning, right? We go back to Shevik's beginning. Um, and this shift in perspective, I think, is, is, is so important, as I've, already, as I've already mentioned. What we're doing is not, it's not like we're telling the story backwards, right? Starting at the beginning and sort of moving back. You know, we're not starting at the end and moving back towards the beginning. Um, because again, that first part is very clearly a beginning, right? Um, but that's the really amazing thing about chapter two, right? When we start chapter two and realize that we're seeing Shevik as a baby, all of a sudden chapter one, which sounded like such a momentous beginning of the story, now starts to sound like an end, right? Um, and we're getting throughout the course of chapter two, part of the story of how Shevik, Shevik got to that moment, right? How Shevik came to be crossing the boundary and taking off. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, we get the, uh, so we start again, chapter one, we get the encounter with Uros. In chapter two, we get the acculturation on Anaris, right? Shevik's own acculturation on Anaris. And so you'll notice how between chapter one and chapter two, what do we have? Another wall, right? Except this one is a temporal wall instead of a spatial wall. In chapter one, we got two spatial walls. 
the boundary line that surrounds the port of Anaris and the edge of the, you know, the limb of the planet, right? The outer crust of the planet, uh, the limb of the sphere, right? Um, now we get a temporal wall and the same thing, the same character looks very different seen from either side of the temporal wall, right? In chapter one, we see Shevik, the Anaresti, the representative of Anaresti culture, um, the definer for our purposes of Anaresti culture and point of view. And here we now immediately see him learning the Anaresti culture, right? See him not acculturated to Anaris and him having to learn it just as we, being outsiders, have to learn it, right? Um, and that's staggering. Think of that the, the 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 temporal wall thing, right? Totally, totally mind blowing. Um, yeah, um, yeah, good. Um, so when we go back, what do we see? What do we see with Shevik as a baby? The knobbly baby, the knobby baby stood up. So there's there's Shevik. Shevik is the knobby baby. We will learn, right? His face was a glare of sunlight and anger. His diapers were about to fall off. Mine, he said in a high ringing voice. Mine, son! It is not yours, said the one-eyed woman. The one-eyed woman said with the mildness of utter certainty. Nothing is yours. It is to use. It is to share. If you will not share it, you cannot use it. And she picked the knobby baby up with gentle, inexorable hands and set him aside out of the square of sunlight. The fat baby sat staring, indifferent. The knobby one shook all over, screamed, Mine, son! and burst into tears of rage. The father picked him up and held him. There now, Shev, he said. Come on, you know you can't have things. What's wrong with you? His voice was soft and shook as if he also was not far from tears. The thin, long, light child in his arms wept passionately. As always, so much going on in this paragraph. What do you notice? What do you notice? Arthur's wondering about the significance of the woman having only one eye. Great question. I mean, I think that, of course, the question can be answered from several reasons, right? Once we get more familiar with Anaraski society, it seems pretty clear, right? Uh, since she only has one eye, she's not fitted for certain work, so she does other work that she, you know, uh, that is perfectly within her means, right? So it's not surprising to see somebody undertaking a physically, uh, a, a comparatively uh, uh, lesser demanding physical job, right? Like tending toddlers. I know those of you who are parents of toddlers are like physically undemanding. I know, dude, I've totally been there. But you know what I mean, like compared to mining and and the kind of labor that uh, that we see uh, Shevik doing out in the out in the the dust flats right afterwards. But anyway, okay, okay. Um, what else? What else do we notice? Um, yeah. Um, Veronica points out there is there is no possession. Everything is communal. Yes, that's the lesson that Shevik is being taught, right? Um, 
notice the the thing and this is um this is something that i think okay i'm about to make a shocking confession for me anyway right um you will never hear me concede this very often are you prepared for it there is a sentence here which is better read in print than heard aloud it's true. It's true. The print version is better than the audiobook version in this sentence. And the sentence is, come on, you know you can't have things, right? Because that's a sentence that um, where you put the emphasis in that sentence really changes its definition, right? Um, is he saying, you know you can't have things? Is he saying, you know you can't have things. Is he saying, you know you can't have things, right? Um, of course, it reminded me of the, uh, you know, of the, the, the common modern witticism, you know, this is why we can't have nice things, right? Except with Shevik, it's not that he can't have nice things, he can't have things, right? Any kind of things. Um, but I think the emphasis, the proper emphasis, is on have. You know you can't have things, right? Um, but I think the ambiguity of the sentence and the fact that we might need to go back and reread it, and certainly that that sentence is going to strike us very differently when we read it, when we read the book for the second time than it will reading the book for the first time. Um, so uh so yeah yeah anyway that's that's so clearly the lesson possession is bad possessiveness is bad um and yet noah makes the a, the brilliant observation which is a very important one for this book they have a word for mine and noah i would add not only do they have a word for mine but the baby knows it right it's not an obscure word um, uh, sounds like baby Shevik here. Toddler Shevik does not have a large vocabulary yet, but he knows that one, right? And that's interesting, right? Um, they have a singular possessive pronoun that is used frequently enough that the baby has picked it up, right? Um, good. Now, Kristen, very good. Kristen Thompson says it's very interesting that the thing that Shevik is desiring and passionate about desiring is something that no one can possess. The sun, sunlight, absolutely. Uh, Kristen, I think it's, this is not a squabble between two toddlers about like a toy, right? They're not, this is not like a tug of war over the train set, which I've, goodness knows I've seen often enough in my life. Um, that's not, that's not what we're seeing here, right? There is an intrinsic absurdity in the claim of Toddler Shevik to own the sun, right? Which is rather masterful, right? That is, it places us, it positions us as readers, I think, in sort of in a sort of a pseudo NRST perspective, right? Um, again, it's like an emphasis thing. When we hear him say, mine son, we might lay the emphasis on the word son and say, that's absurd, right? Um, the anorasty adults surrounding him lay the stress on mine and say, you know, mine son and say, that's absurd, right? Both we and the anorasty think that that's absurd, but possibly for different reasons, right? 
in other words, that we seem to be given this, we seem to, to be being given this emphasis. How about that for an awkward verbal construction? Um, seem to be being given this insight into anorasty perspective, right? Um, the claim to possess something, anything, is as absurd as a child claiming to possess the sun, right? You can no more possess a thing or a person than you could claim to possess the sun, right? Awesome point, James. James Stephen points out, notice that even as a toddler, Shevik is looking beyond Anaris. Yeah, sure is, isn't he, James? That's very good. That's very good. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, Tom Hillman goes so far as to liken baby Shevik to Melkor, who desires to possess the secret fire for himself. It's, it's like that, Tom. But I mean, joking aside, it is kind of like that, right? I mean, it's it is as uh, it is as countercultural in a sense, right? It is as uh, uh, it is it is a parallel kind of uh, 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 you know stepping outside of the appointed sphere, right? Um, uh, Tom Arthur Harrow is wondering uh, who put out Nienna's eye, uh, but anyway. See, I've been lured into a Tolkien digression, uh, which everyone knew was going to happen sooner or later. But I don't think I'd... This is the, my first, isn't it? D didn't I get this far? Right? We got an hour and 32 minutes in <laughs> into our discussion. First, we've got a timer, so I can tell you exactly how long it's been. Um, so, see, so there you go, Tommy. you, you got an another over-under you can do, right? Uh, now that we have a timestamp. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, 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 okay. Um, good, good. Okay, more. Back to the the knobbly baby. Knobby. I just want to call him knobbly. The knobby baby. Um, Noam says a baby wanting something is described as wrong. The ideology of a naris is very strict. I agree. And I would go a little bit further than that. Okay, I'm s scrolling back to your first observation on uh, this passage. I have to make sure to find it. Where was it? Um, yes, okay. Kay says, this teaching moment was odd to her. Um, it all starts because the other baby tries to take the ray of sun, the, the rays of sun from Shevik. Wouldn't he be discouraged as well? Yeah. Um, Kay, the same thing strikes me. Um, in fact, Kay, couldn't you go so far as to say the uh, one-eyed matron, right? The one-eyed woman seems to be only looking at things from one side of this particular wall, right? There are two ways of looking at this incident that just happened. And, um, you know, there seems to be some, uh, you know, not sharing seems to be going around in this nursery, right? Um, Shevik was sitting there minding his own business. And yet the fat baby is not punished for this. He's not scolded, right? He's not told, no, you can't take things from other people, right? Um, so why is 
why the injustice? I get to see what, well, and so I think we have uh, stumbled upon a symbolic significance of the one-eyed woman. But um, uh, why the injustice? That is just, I mean, I mean, literally, why does Shevet get in trouble and the other kid not get in trouble? Yeah, Kay says uh, Shevik's passion is punished. Um, the fat baby's indifference is praised. Yeah, the reason for the injustice is that Shevik is the one who yells. He's the one who cries out, right? He's the one who voices the unacceptable thing. He's the one who says, mine, mine, that we can't have. Right, we won't have apparently in Anaris. Um, and yet, what we do see is that both of them were acting apparently contrary to the NRSD ethic, and yet the injustice has been allowed to go on. Could it be that injustice of that kind is endemic? I mean, is this representative? Right, does this kind of thing happen a lot? Um, and one other, Kay, you were making uh, several wonderful observations here. Um, Kay points out that the father seems to be of two minds. He is also not far from tears. Um, he's teaching his child the party line, but it grieves him to do so. It does seem to grieve him to do so. He does not... Um, he is... Um, seems to have some of that proprietarian viewpoint himself, right? What would appear to be an instinctive desire, assuming that the desires being expressed by the toddlers here are more or less instinctive, um, you know, native to them and not trained into them by society because we see society attempting very hard to teach them other things. Um, the father seems to be not free of it, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, all right, all right, more. Um, good, good. Kate Neville says, there do seem to be certain knobs uh, in Shevik's character which will never quite be straightened out. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a fascinating, that's a fascinating observation. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, more. Um, all right. This is in the second section of chapter two. So he's now, what, eight years old, I believe, if I remember correctly. And this is when he's in the speaking and, le and listening circle. And he's doing the joke about how you can't hit the tree with a rock because it has to go halfway and then it has to go halfway again. It will never get to the tree, right? Um, you didn't see that for yourself. It wasn't spontaneous. I've read something very like it in a book. Shevik stared at the director. What book? Is there one here? The director stood up. He was about twice as tall and three times as heavy as his opponent, and it was clear in his face that he disliked the child intensely. But there was no threat of physical violence in his stance, only an assertion of authority, a little weakened by his irritable response to the child's odd question. No, and stop egoizing. Then he resumed his melodious, pedantic tone. 
This kind of thing is really directly contrary to what we're after in a speaking and listening group. Speech is a two-way function. Shevik isn't ready to understand that yet, as most of you are, and so his presence is disruptive to the group. You feel that yourself, don't you, Shevik? I'd suggest that you find another group working on your level. I, um... I think... Oh, yeah, by the way, great. Sorry. As often happens when people are typing and doing final comments on the last passage, but I, I sometimes want to do a little rider. But Mark, I really want to make sure to mention your comment here. Mark says, I thought the father crying was drawing a parallel between Chev's wanting to possess the son and his wanting to stay with his partner. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. So in that, uh, in that parallel, the mother is like the son. Right. But anyway, okay. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, Jennifer, it sure does seem like Shevik never really fits in. Right. Um, I think I found this passage the second most painful passage in the entire book. Um, it was, it's awful. Just to see Shevik crushed in this way, right? And Michael, exactly as you were observing here, the teacher is also egoizing and isn't ready for a two-way discussion, right? He is cutting off Shevik. He is showing no interest in listening, right? Um, and trying to understand Shevik's point of view, right? Um, Nancy points out that just before this, the director tries to get the other children on his side by asking if they find it interesting. Nancy, that's how he interrupts Shevik, right? Do any of you find this interesting? Um, but this backfires because at least one of them does find it interesting. Um, so it's not really, so is it not really the doctor who is egoizing, she says, and making the group to fit his goals? Yes, it does. Um, it does. That, that certainly does seem to be the case. What I end up, um, coming into this with, right? I too, Kay, just like you did, that first scene with the babies made me uncomfortable, Right. Um, I mean, again, I could see, you know, the ideals of, of you know, non-ownership, right, and sharing and all that. That sounds lovely, right? Um, so, like, the, the, the values which they appear to be teaching Baby Shevik in the previous passage seem like excellent ideals, right? But I, too, was a little uncomfortable by the injustice, a little bit uncomfortable by the way in which the teacher, in the act of teaching this, the teachers themselves don't seem to be acting consistently um, with their principles, with their premises. Um, that discomfort is very, very much stronger in this passage. In this passage, it just screams, it's like all I can hear, right? Um, this teacher sounds like an incredible flaming hypocrite, right? And again, talk about somebody who can't see both sides of the wall. Um, from where he's standing, Shevik is the one being quarantined, the one who needs to be quarantined and sent off somewhere else, right? The wall, from his perspective, encloses Shevik and everyone else is on the outside of it. It's this little world, right? This 
meager 60 acres of barren land. That's Shevik inside the wall, right? But from inside the wall, right, you get the connection to the whole rest of the universe. And Shevik's way of looking at things is different from other people's, right? But it's, um, it's not... Um, Does it need to be quarantined? I don't know. Maybe it does. Um, Noam, I agree. Uh, Noam says that there is a great irony in the suggestion that Shevik should find a group that is more on his level. Uh, yeah, exactly, Noam. Like one that's smarter than those other kids, right? That he is. The irony is that he is not below the other one, the, the other children, but 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 ahead of them, right? Um, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Kate Neville says, you just know that this teacher was one of those throwing stones at Shevik in chapter one. Nothing could surprise me less, uh, Kate, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, now Mick was querying before the assumption that underlies the, the accusation, it wasn't spontaneous, right? And Mick was just asking, Everything has to be spontaneous. Like speech needs to be spontaneous. Ideas need to be spontaneous. Um, I mean, Mick, my understanding of the criticism that the teacher is making there is that he's he's egoizing, right? That is, he is trying to draw attention to himself. He's trying to draw praise to himself. He's taking something that he read in a book. The teacher believes, or seems to believe, that he's taking something that he read in a book and trying to pass it off as his own spontaneous thought. Right, in order to make himself look big and make other people admire him, um, that seems to be at least one thing that he, um, uh, one thing that he means by the word egoizing there. But I think we see a bit of a shift, right? Yeah, showing off as he later defines it, Tom. Exactly. But but oh, good. And Noam says if it's not spontaneous, it also means you kept it for yourself for some time before sharing it, right? Yeah, exactly. If you stored it up, um, you're hoarding it, right? You can't have things, even ideas, right? That I always know them, yeah, that would seem to be the logical extension of that, right? Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, but but more, the, the when uh, he, that is the teacher, goes on to use, when he says, know and stop egoizing, Right? What is he talking about? There he's no longer talking about the rock and the tree idea, right? Um, he's talking about Shevik's response to his critique, right? I've read something very like it in a book, and Shevik says, what book? Is there one here? Why does the teacher say stop egoizing when Shevik asks that? In what sense, from the teacher's side of the wall, um, you know, from that point of view, in what sense is that question an egoizing question? What do you think about that? What exactly is he accusing Shevik of doing when he says stop egoizing there in that moment? I doubt, Nick, that it has to do with the reading of books. Um, wanting a book for himself, Neil suggests, that seems possible. Uh, Kristen says, uh, similarly, learning for himself instead of, uh, instead of others. Um, 
questioning the authority of the teacher, possibly, Arthur. Um, Tom was thinking of the same thing, challenging the authority of the teacher in the group. Um, it's possible. Again, it depends on how he's hearing the question, right? Because, of course, that those questions, what he actually says, what, he's actually, what he actually says can be understood in several different ways. It could sound defiant. What book? Is there one here? Right? Prove it. I dare you. Demonstrate. You think that I didn't make that up? Show me. Right? That would be disrespectful. Right? Um, that would be challenging the authority of the teacher. But wait a second. Wouldn't the authority of the teacher himself be egotistical? Right? Not about the, you know, so having that, asserting that kind of authority would be egoizing, wouldn't it? But anyway, never mind. Okay, so if it were defiant, like that. that but of course, it's not the only way to read that question in any way, right? Um, how else could we read it? If we try to get on Shevik's side of the wall... What is that question? I mean, yeah, J Jennifer, that's exactly, you've got several people are saying the same thing, but um, merely curious or even hopeful, Jennifer says. Hopeful is exactly, eager, yes, Rachel, exactly. Um, what book? Is, is there one here? Can, can, can I, somebody, this isn't a book? There's a book that has this in it? Can I, can I, I, I want to read that book. Absolutely. Um, intellectual curiosity is what, like, He's gotten distracted from the scolding by the wait, wait, hang on, time out. There's a book with this in it, right? That's totally how I read that, right? That's I, I think that's that's um, he does seem to be yes, James, genuinely interested, right? But that's clearly not how the director takes it. But even more than merely, even more than challenging the. Um, you know, than than just challenging the the teacher, right? The director, um, you know, like defying his authority or challenging his authority. I think even just the general concept, Arthur, as you say, of nonconformity, right? He's not playing along. He's being told that he he. Now, of course, there's irony again here, right? Um, he's being accused of not being expressing spontaneous thought, and the minute that he does express spontaneous thought, right? The desire to see that book. He scolded again, right? But anyway, he's just been called out for dominating, right? He's egoizing by dominating the discussion, right? Speech and speaking and listening is a two-way thing, right? It's a sharing experience. You're not sharing, right? You're just egoizing. You're just trying to draw attention to yourself. You're just trying to... So that seems to be, when he says stop egoizing that second time there, no and stop egoizing, there's, it seems like stop Stop trying to draw attention to yourself. Stop sticking out. Right? Join the group. Um, yeah, Rachel, the director doesn't seem to like those who think for themselves. And certainly not those who speak out of turn. Again, there's the irony of the sort of apparent embracing of spontaneity. Right? Um, he says he likes... He wants speech to be spontaneous, but he... Uh, doesn't seem to actually want spontaneous discussion. Shevik 
is wanting to share. He's wanting the director to share with him. Share with me about that book, right? Um, I can't help but leave this passage with questions like, where is the brotherhood? Where is the community? Where is the compassion? The picture that we get from Shevik's childhood is not one of community, not one of brotherhood, but one of loneliness and isolation. And we're seeing spite and envy directed at him, right? And throughout, injustice and hypocrisy, right? James Stevens points out that people on this side of the wall are supposed to have freedom, but they're being told what to think. Yeah, yeah. Um, where does Shevik find refuge? Eight-year-old Shevik, child Shevik. Where does he find peace? You remember? Where does he find peace? Math, Kristen, exactly. Math. If a book were written all in numbers, it would be true. It would be just. Nothing said in words ever came out quite even. Things in words got twisted and ran together, instead of saying, staying straight and fitting together. But underneath the words, at the center, like the center of the square, it all came out even. Everything could change, yet nothing would be lost. If you saw the numbers, you could see that, the balance, the pattern. You saw the foundations of the world, and they were solid. Remember what the square is? Right? The square is this mental picture that he has of the first nine integers, right? Numbers one through nine arranged in a pattern with five in the middle, right? And how beautifully balanced and symmetrical it is, right? One in the top corner, nine in the bottom corner, you know, one plus nine is, ten, you know, it, it, it adds up to 15, whatever direction you go, right? Um, it's beautiful. It's perfect. Um, but again, notice the words, true, just. He finds truth and justice in math, in numbers, and in numbers alone. Words, you don't find truth and justice in words, right? Words got twisted and ran together instead of staying straight and fitting together, right? Um, again, the thing about the real world, the thing about human interactions is it doesn't fit together. It doesn't match up, right? Um, things from different sides of the, the things on different sides of the wall look different from each other, right? Um, is the patch of land that's enclosed by the wall small or big, right? It's messy because it's not just math, right? There's this mathematical element, right, that geometric line, but it's all messy, right? It's all this, like, Uros and Anaris thing, and um, it all gets twisted, right? Um, Interesting case says she loves the she loves the juxtaposing of running together 
right? Things becoming homogeneous and fitting together, things being interdependent. Anaris leads to the former, homogeneity, right? Though it claims to have the latter, interdependence. Now we can see some evidence for that, right? Kayak, remember his resistance to the idea that men and women are treated exactly alike. No, they're, they're different, right? It's comical, right? He laughs at the idea of them being treated exactly alike. Um, uh, they're interdependent uh, and equally like respectful of each other, right? Not just, uh, uh, not merely homogeneous. But, um, um, but yeah, it, it, it is, this definitely does show sort of the issues with that. And the, and the question is we see throughout, like what's the reality? There's the ideal and then there's the reality, right? And notice, K, those don't stay straight and fit together either, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Kate points out he has a thirst to make sense of the world around him. Yes, he wishes the world around him were like numbers. Um, and what do we see him doing? What's his job? What's his profession? He's finding, he's deriving equations that describe the world, right? As a physicist, that's what he's, uh, that's what he's going to be doing right um yeah kristen i agree i don't have a passage uh uh i didn't put up a slide for the for the passage you're referring to but kristen i agree i found that a very moving scene uh, she says it's kind of beautiful that uh the 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 earliest conversation real conversation we see between shevik uh that we see shevik have is due to numbers that is the the conversation that he has with his father where his father is showing him how to use a slide rule right um and it's comforting to both of them that the, the first time we ever see Shevik happy, we've seen him unhappy twice. We've seen him him shaking with tears of rage in the first scene, not chronologically the first scene, and we've seen him um, uh, horrible, you know, very upset and discombobulated when he's kicked out of the speaking and listening group. Um, we see him happy when he's having logarithms explained to him by his father, right? and shown being taught how a slide rule works. Um, yes, that is positive social interaction, right? Um, yeah. Um, it's the foundations of the world. Numbers are the foundations of the world and they're solid. Um, good, yeah. Uh, Kay points out that if we didn't have the wall, right, if we only saw Anaris itself, this is just a story that took place entirely on Anaris, um, then perhaps these interesting injustices and flaws would make it seem like a, a poor world indeed. But when contrasted with Urus's terrible inequalities, gender inequalities, classes, so like to our world, Anaris has a certain excellence and appeal. The two worlds are really nuanced. It's really wonderful. It is. Uh, it is K, and that's again. Um, this book is constantly resisting, teaching us to resist. I would go so far as to say, those kinds of simple conclusions. Right? It's not the one world is a bowl full of light, and the other is blackness. Right? It's not like that. It's not. Does it's not how it works. Um,
One more. One more. I can skip ahead more easily in this one. I'm skipping two passages. Uh, the two gifts he receives. So this is the morning after he wakes up from uh, uh, getting pummeled by Shevet. Remember whose name is almost exactly the same as his? He had a ringing in his right ear for a couple of days and a split lip that took long to heal because of the dust which irritated all sores. He and Shevet never spoke again. He saw the man in a distance, at other cook fires, without animosity. Shevet had given him what he had to give, and he accepted the gift, though for a long time he never weighed it or considered its nature. By the time he did so, there was no distinguishing it from another gift, another epoch in his growing up. A girl, one who had recently joined his work gang, came up to him just as Shevet had in the darkness as he left the cook fire, and his lip wasn't healed yet. He never could remember what she said. She had teased him. Again, he responded simply. They went out into the plain in the night, and there she gave him the freedom of the flesh. That was her gift, and he accepted it. Like all children of Anaris, he had had sexual experience freely with both boys and girls, but he and they had been children. He, and he had never got further than the pleasure he assumed was all there was to it. Bishun, expert in delight, took him into the heart of sexuality, where there is no rancor and no ineptitude, where the two bodies striving to join each other annihilate the moment in their striving and transcend the self and transcend time. Okay. Now, you know what my question, my first question is going to be, right? What are the two gifts and how are they like each other, right? He says that the gift that's given to him by Shevet, when Shevet beats him, the gift that's given to him by Shevet is, he can't distinguish it from the gift that's given him by Bashan. It's not just that he is taught two different lessons in near proximity to each other, right? And thus he associates them together. He says he can't distinguish the one gift from the other. What are the gifts? How do we understand this? I tell you one thing immediately that this makes me think. If it weren't for that first bit, about the beating being a gift, if he had just talked about Bashun and the sex and the gift, this would be easy to understand. But I don't think any any of us would have any difficulty in understanding this passage, right? Where I'll be like, yeah, okay, she, you know, gave him the gift, what, the gift of pleasure, the gift of this sexual experience, of the, you know, this, uh, you know, the term that it uses about this this you know beginning of a new epoch in his life right um that's a gift sure we can accept that as a gift right but the fact that he has just called his beating by shevet a gift earlier in the same paragraph suggests perhaps to us that 
we need to be careful how we're understanding the term gift. That maybe the gift given to him by Bashun is not quite so is not quite what we might initially assume that it was. Do you see what I mean? So let's go back to the second gift again. What is the gift as it's described here? Is it pleasure? I mean, I don't think so. Is it knowledge, experience? I don't think so. I mean, I'm not saying none of those things, that those things are all irrelevant or something. Both Nancy and Kay are both pointing to freedom, kind of free, the freedom of the flesh. And uh, Nancy talks about how the, the tech calls it a kind of freedom. Yes, um, freedom from self, freedom from time. Um, took him to the heart of sexuality, where there is no rancor and no ineptitude, where the two bodies striving to join each other annihilate the moment in their striving and transcend the self and transcend time. So the transcending of self is what's important about the sexual experience there? Is there a sense in which Shevet gave him a similar gift with the beating? Let's back up a little bit. What's the context of the beating from Shevet? This is not just, right? I mean, it's, it's clearly important that it's that dude beating him up, right? This isn't just like, the night that, you know, Shevik got mugged on the way home, right? This is not just some random dude jumping out from behind a bush and beating on him, right? If it were merely the physical stimulus of being beaten, I mean, that's an experience, right? Um, and a new one to him. Um, but it's not just that, right? What's the deal? What's Shevet's deal? Shevet is the one who has the same name, or almost the same name. A name so close that they get confused with each other. What's Shevet's reaction to that? How does Shevet respond to finding that there's this other guy in the camp who has almost the same name? Do you remember? How does Shevet feel about Shevet? feel about the fact. Yes, Nancy, Shevik felt a kind of kinship to him. Yes, yes. He felt a bond with this guy, right? We're brothers. I mean, everybody's brothers, but we're like almost the same, right? I'm almost the same as that guy, is his reaction, right? What is Shevik's, Shevik's with a T's response? Yeah, Veronica says he tells him to change his name. Yeah, he doesn't want Shevet 
does not want to share his identity with somebody else. He's sick of them getting confused. As James Stevens puts it, Shevet wants Shevek to change who he is. He's supposed to change his name, right? Yes, Nancy, that seems very proprietarian. Mark Ingram says, my name, my name. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, but Michael, yeah, the element of rejection there, right? Here's Shevik. Shevik's first response to him is a warm response, right? A special kinship, a special brotherhood between the two of them. And he's disillusioned of that, right? Yeah, and Rachel, you're right. It's Shevik who, who accuses Shevik of being a profiteer, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, back to Bushun then. If the sexual experience with Bushun, um annihilated, right, so they joined they, and annihilated the moment in their striving, transcending the self, transcending time. Um, okay, so if they're transcending self and transcending time, does what we see in his encounter with Shevet fit into that? Hang on, a couple of you are wanting to talk about names and where names come from in Anaris, but we don't know that yet. We can talk about that, and it's totally relevant. And again, you know, we see things that um, uh, we do know, of course, when we're reading the book for the second time, that names in Anaris are assigned by a computer. Um, and they are all unique, which makes the link between them seem more significant, right? Because coincidental. Um, and raises the question of fundamental connection between name and person, right? But we don't know that yet. Shevet and Shevik. The problem there was a confusion, was about identity, was about self, and confusion of self. So in both cases, in, that is in the sexual union between Shevik and Bushun, and in the overlap of names between Shevet and Shevik. In both cases, we have two people who are whose the boundaries between whom are being annihilated, right? See what I mean? Um, but I agree. James, that it seems to be opposite, right? Shevik thought of Shevet as one with him, but Shevet forced them apart. Bashun joins with Shevik, and they become one. She starts off teasing him, right? Um, as if she's going to mock him, as if she's pushing him away. But then they join and become one. So James, there's certainly a kind of symmetry there, between the two of them, right? So this brings me back to my first question then again. In what sense 
is are these gifts again they don't seem to point in the same direction right it's not like he's learning the same lesson both ways you could say james as you're sort of suggesting they point in opposite directions right This is difficult, and I don't know that we're going to come to a, a definite conclusion. Again, I want to keep thinking about this in the context of the whole work, but um, he doesn't say that the two gifts are the same gift. He just says that he can't distinguish it from the other gift, right? They're associated together. And they do seem to me to be symmetrical to be almost mirror opposites, to be almost complementary. None of those uh, none of those metaphors, I think, really works perfectly. But but again, both of them are about, I would say, both of them, both of the encounters are about sameness and difference, right? Both of them are about nearness and about separation. Both of them are about identity and distinction, right? Um, he sought, he, remember the thing about the sex with Bashan, he didn't know that that was possible, right? His eyes are opened to a kind of union, right? A kind of oneness, an annihilation of self that he did not know was a thing, right? He did not know that was possible. Contrasted with the kinship that he automatically felt for Shevet because their names were very similar, right? He thought that this kind of tied them together. Left to itself, either one of those two lessons, either one of those two gifts would be misleading, wouldn't they? Right? If he had only encountered Bashun, he might come away from that experience thinking like, uh, we can all join together, you know, like oneness is the thing that we should, yes, let's, let's annihilate self and let's, we are all one, right? Or something, right? Uh, again, if you're thinking about this in a sort of philosophical way rather than in, you know, just merely thinking about the sex in a physical way. Um, but of course that's not true, right? The first lesson taught him that it's, that oneness isn't automatic and it's not, you, you, Shevet was not one with him, right? Not only was Shevet not, you know, uh, um, a kindred spirit. Um, I still have Anne of Green Gables in my head. Um, uh, not only was Shevet not a kindred spirit, um, Shevet was very other from him, right? And wanted to make him other and keep him other. Um, yeah. Yeah, good. Brian emphasizes that uh, um, we aren't told how long it takes him to recognize the gifts as being indistinguishable. Um, it certainly wasn't immediate. Yes, good, good. It's only on reflection, Brian, the kind of reflection that we're doing now, that he came to see the the joining, right, the union, the similarity, um, or rather the fitness of the two gifts side by side. 
Um, and of course, we can't go away without again emphasizing it's not just self that's being transcended there, right? It's time that's being transcended. And that's important in this book. Um, all right. Um, no problem. Well, so that was pretty much all I wanted to cover tonight. I think we're good. Um, more next time. We uh, please do read chapters three and four next time because I am gonna. We we'll, we have a few more things in chapter one and two I want to talk about, but we will get into chapters three and four. And uh, remember, we have a catch-up day coming in week four, so I'm not worried about getting behind. Remember, I planned to get behind this time. The whole schedule is devised around me being behind. Thank you for uh, uh, for joining me tonight. Thank you for uh, spending this time with me. Um, notice after I we've been talking about this stuff, every word I use, I'm like thinking about it more than one sense. Anyway, thank you again. Um, thanks for uh, uh, helping me try out this new... Um, this new system. I hope you're finding the interface, um, uh, you know, easy. I hope that it's uh, that it's 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 working out uh, more or less. There are things that I really like about it, so I'm hopeful that this is a that this will be a good thing. Um, but anyway, thanks again. I'll see you guys next week. Don't forget tomorrow night, 9:30. I'm going to be explaining the 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 campaign and all the awesome things we're going to be doing during our fundraising campaign this year. Uh, and don't forget, I hope that you will consider supporting Signum so we can keep all these uh, awesome fun programs going uh, uh, in, the, uh, in, in, in the coming year. Thanks very much, everybody. Good